there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. Mario, sit. How is Miriam? She's worried about me. And how is the little one? Oh, she's growing too fast. Sometimes I pray for time to stop, and then I realize that if it does, I will never be rid of the monster. What is troubling you today? I had a nightmare last night. It wasn't the first. I keep seeing their faces, the blood, the mutilations. These have become the things of my dreams. I don't know if I can escape them. But you can. They have become so familiar. Without them, the world is a dull shade. I... I hate them and yet crave them. Does that make any sense? Some, yes. I can't help but think... What is it, Mario? It's... It's terrible, but... But I know it to be true. What do you know? This monster, whoever he is, I am not so different. You are not so different. None of us are or can be. Every single one of us has the monster inside. But the question is... To what degree? The true nature of evil, a question as old as time itself. And in the early 1980s, an Italian journalist by the name of Mario Spezzi was confronting this very subject. He was the star reporter on the crimes of a serial killer he eventually deemed Il Mostro di Firenze, the Monster of Florence. Spetsy became so consumed by reporting these slangs that he sought out psychological and spiritual counsel. This led him to a monk named Brother Galileo Babini. Well, he ran therapy sessions out of his room in a dilapidated monastery that was built in the 11th century. Brother Babini would serve as Spetsy's lifeline during the many years he reported on the case. That's right, 25 years to be exact. Spetsy wrote about the monster of Florence from 1981 to 2006. Spetsy's persistence was matched by the monster's relentlessness. Over the course of 11 years, he killed 14 people, and he may have also been responsible for another double homicide several years earlier which would make that number actually 16. The monster's victims were all couples who went into the Tuscan hills at night for secret rendezvous. The killer would watch as the couples got intimate, then he'd strike when they were the most vulnerable, most likely right before climax. 
All victims were killed in their cars, shot at close range. The female bodies were mutilated, their genitals removed with a knife. The number of victims attributed to one person may surprise you, but the number of suspects that have been interrogated over several decades will shock you. That number is over 100,000. Unbelievable. Despite the plethora of suspects, the monster has never been caught. His story still holds a fascinating allure for many Italians, journalists, and writers alike. So we can understand why Spezzi devoted so many years of his life writing about him. The killer may still be out there, reveling in his old age at his criminal masterpiece. Or he may have already passed away. Regardless, his brutal and disturbing legacy lives on. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our first episode on the Monster of Florence. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Now, back to the terrifying tale of the Monster of Florence. Spetsy's reporting on the case began on June 7, 1981, when he was covering the crime desk at La Nazion, Florence's top newspaper. Mario, what are you doing here? Has mass been canceled? I went. Roberto asked me to cover his desk. Some appointment he couldn't miss. Well, shouldn't be a long day. Nothing ever happens on a Sunday. But something did. Mario Spezzi, crime desk. Yes, a murder has been committed. A young couple. You must come see. Mario leapt at the news. He drove to a quiet lane in the hills of southern Tuscany, not too far from where he himself lived. You Spezzi? I am. From La Nazion. Right. Come, come. You'll see. The boy is in the driver's seat. He looks like he's sleeping. The big sleep. Yes. The boy was shot in his temple. I see. And the girl? She's behind the car. But it's much worse. The female victim was found shot in the back, lying naked on a bed of grass and wildflowers. There was a single gold chain placed in between her lips. Her genitals are missing. My God! I can see that! Do you need a moment? <clears throat> to take some notes, yes. <sighs> Spetsy would later recall that the entire scene looked like a museum diorama. So staged, cold, and immobile. And when investigators took a crack at it, they came to a few quick conclusions. The sexual nature of this crime can only be the work of a man. The mutilation of the female victim is so precise, we may be looking for a surgeon or doctor of some kind. What about a butcher? We cannot rule that out either. According to the examiner, the perforations on the skin suggest that a scuba knife was used. Scuba? For cutting fishing lines. So we're looking for a diver? I did not say that. Only that a scuba knife was probably used. The police had their theories, but Spetsy had his own. 
He wrote an article in La Nazione about the slang and, in a sidebar, revealed something that caused an uproar. He noted that the killing was quite similar to a double homicide from 1974, also committed in the hills of Florence. The victims, an amorous couple in the backseat of a car. Spezzi went on to implore the police to compare the bullet shells from both crime scenes. Angered that Spezzi called them out in the press, but also feeling the pressure to deliver, the investigators reluctantly obliged. They compared the bullets and discovered that they had both come from a 22 caliber Beretta, a long-firing Winchester to be precise. And that's not all. The gun had a defect that, when fired, caused a mark on the shell of each bullet. An identifiable scar, if you will. So the gun used in the 1981 crime was the same used in 1974. Right. So now the cops had a murder weapon to search for, but they were also starting their arduous manhunt. The first general theory that emerged, that the killer was some sex-obsessed local voyeur. In Italy, illicit sex in the hills was pretty common at the time, considering Italian men and women often lived with their parents until they married. And because so many people venture into the hills for such activity, Others go up there to watch. These peeping toms were known as Indiani, or Indians, because they snuck around in the dark. Well, some of these voyeurs were so committed that they even had high-tech gadgets like night vision cameras. Wow, that sounds pretty professional. Well, after a hasty investigation, authorities arrested a frequent voyeur by the name of Enzo Spalletti. He was held in police custody. And then, on October 3, 1981, four months after the first killing, another couple turned up dead. 26-year-old Stefano Baldi and 24-year-old Susanna Cambi. They were killed on a Saturday night in the northern hills of Florence. Both were shot, and just like the other female victim, Cambi's genitals were missing. This was the second murder believed to be at the hands of the monster of Florence. Because the crime was committed when Spalletti was in police custody, authorities concluded he couldn't have done it, so he was released. Over the course of a month, Spezzi wrote around 57 articles about the serial killings. Well, that is a ton. How is that even possible? Whew, sheer determination. Some might say it started to become an obsession for him. No kidding. In these articles, he proposed different suspects that had come up during the investigation. One was a priest who got his kicks by shaving the pubic hair of prostitutes. Another was a psychic who went to the cemetery to contact the dead. Spetsy's head was a mess of crime scene photos, deranged suspects, and existential ponderings. That's when he started his therapy sessions with Brother Babini. Then things quieted down for a while. Eight months to be exact. The manhunt continued, of course, but it was proving to be fruitless. Then, in June of 1982, Paolo Menardi and Antonello Migliorini, both in their early 20s, were found dead in the Tuscan region of Montespertoli, when the monster of Florence had struck again for the third time. As the investigation continued, nearly two weeks later, authorities received an anonymous letter. Once opened, it revealed an old newspaper clipping from 1968. It was an article featuring a double homicide. A man and a woman had been killed while having a tryst in a parked car. Scribbled on the article was a single statement. Take another look at this crime. Well, who had sent this and why? Was the monster himself playing a mischievous game with his investigators? Well, authorities took the order quite seriously and went through old boxes of evidence from the 1968 crime. And what they found was quite interesting. Bullet shells that had been fired by a 22 Beretta. 
These shells also contained the mark from the defective firing pin. Well, this could mean that the monster had actually begun his killing spree back in 1968. This was a major monkey wrench, especially because a man had already been convicted in that case. He was Stefano Mele, the husband of the female victim, Barbara Locci, who had gone to the hills with her lover. Mele had confessed that he had killed Barbara and her lover out of revenge. He was sentenced to 14 years in prison. So is Mele the monster of Florence? Well, it seems that he couldn't be, considering he was locked up at the time of the murders in 1974 and 1981. But now, in 1982, he was living in a halfway house in Verona, Italy. When news of Mele spread, Spetsy jumped at the opportunity to interview him. But getting access to Mele would be tough. So what did Spetsy do? He hired a filmmaker and visited the halfway house, pretending to do a documentary on the house's goodwill. Spetsy was granted access inside. We appreciate you opening your doors to us. It will be great to get the house some exposure. We're always needing donations on volunteers. I'd like to interview some of the residents. They are all ex-convicts, correct? Well, that's right. Are they benefiting from the program? Absolutely. I see the work of God every day. After interviewing several residents, Spetsy finally met Mele, the only person he came there to see. During the interview, he transitioned to the question of the 1968 murder, the one Mele was convicted of. Uh, I don't... I don't want to talk about that. Are you guilty of the crime, Mr. Mele? What's the matter? I, I'm here, aren't I? What do you mean by that? Is that why you've come here to ask me if I'm a guilty man? That is one of the reasons. The police. They're looking at more crimes. That's right. More murders. Like the one you were convicted of. They need to figure out where that pistol is. Yes, I agree with you. Otherwise, there will be more murders. They will continue to kill. They will continue. They? Mr. Mele, what do you mean by they? But that was the most Spetsy could get out of him. Mele seemed disturbed and distant and began to ramble incoherently. But his revelation about the possibility of multiple killers was huge. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to our story. Mele's revelation about multiple killers coincided with the police's investigation as well. Authorities discovered that Stefano Mele was not the only killer the night of the murder in 1968. There were others, a group of Sardinian clan members. For those of you unfamiliar with this term, let us explain. Back in the 1960s, Italians from the island of Sardinia immigrated to the region of Tuscany. Well, they did this to escape the barren and poverty-stricken island of Sardinia, searching for opportunity in the growing region of Tuscany. Criminal factions arose, and those belonging to the Sardinian clan had a specific brand of violence and an extreme loyalty to each other. Well, the theory was that the murder of Mele's wife was a revenge killing, but it was carried out by Mele and his loyal clan members. One police theory was that after the killing, one of the members developed an even greater taste for blood. So he continued to kill, choosing the same gun that was used in the 1968 murder of Mele's wife, Barbara. This theory became known as the Sardinian Trail, and it opened up a fairly direct investigation into the lives of powerful Sardinian clan members known as the Vinci Brothers. Well, the cops started with the youngest brother, Francesco. They arrested him in 1983 and brought him in for questioning. While he was in police custody, the monster killed again. But this murder was quite different from the others. Mr. Spezzi, we meet again, under similar circumstances. Another young couple? Yes. 
but not what you would expect. They are not Italian. No, they are German tourists, but that is not what I mean. Look closer. They are men, both of them. And I can tell you, since I've already seen, their genitals are intact. The killer only takes from the female victim. Ah, but there is none to take from. I think this angered him. Look at the man right there. He has long blonde hair, no? Hmm. I see it. Looks like a woman from here. Yes. Yes, I could see that. I think the killer thought he was murdering a young couple, a man and a woman, you see. Maybe he pulled the trigger on both of them, and when he went to do what he does to the women, he discovered, well, (laughs) he discovered he was wrong. But look here. What is that? A homosexual magazine. Very graphic. It's been torn up. The killer could not mutilate his victim, and in his frustration, he tore up the magazine instead. That is just a guess, but I'm fairly confident. This is so strange. When you write your article, Mr. Spatesy, I hope that you will paint us in a better light this time. I'm sorry? You've been given access that no other Florentine journalist has. That's something worthwhile, isn't it? I see. Despite this new development in the case, officers continued to detain Francesco, and they also arrested his nephew, Antonio. Your uncle is being held at the prison. There have been attacks on his life. There are many enemies of the clan where he is, men whose wives or daughters you have raped, men whose families you have killed. You are smaller. You are younger. When you go there, you will surely be torn apart. (sighs) Not once, not twice, but daily. But there is a way to avoid that anguish, that physical pain, that hell. You tell us where the gun is. You tell us anything about this monster, Florence. There is hope for you. You can't keep me here in a stupid gun charge. I'm no fool and I'm not a coward. I know nothing, so I say nothing. Both Antonio and Francesco were continually grilled by investigators. Nothing came of it, but they were still detained in the hopes that something would. And then it happened. Another murder in July of 1984. This would be the sixth double murder linked to the monster. The victims were 21-year-old Claudio Stefanici and his girlfriend, Pia Rontini, only 18 years old. The crime followed a similar pattern of the monster, except for one new detail, a second mutilation of the woman. In addition to the removal of her genitals, her left breast had been amputated and was also missing. The particular location of this crime was the town of Vicio, famous for being the birthplace of the Italian artist Giotto. The shock of this sixth crime in Giotto's hometown overwhelmed the Italian people. They wanted and demanded closure and justice. So local law enforcement and the military police force known as the Carabinieri teamed up and formed a special task force. It was called the Squadra Antimostro that when translated is Team Anti-Monster. Sounds more like a children's superhero fantasy than a police force. 
Nonetheless, the creation of this task force was a sign that authorities meant business. The Italian government even offered a reward equivalent of $290,000 for any information that could lead them to the monster. Well, that's not all. Tourists coming into the country were warned with posters and flyers telling them not to venture into the hills at night. During this time, Spezzi was still furiously typing away at La Nazione. And, just like the monster, he had also been given a nickname. His colleagues at the paper started calling him Monstrologer. A clever play on the astrology section of a newspaper. Spezzi was now inextricably tied to the monster, even by name. It was Spezzi who gave the public access to the horror of the monster. He was, in a way, the monster's liaison to the world. The monster would enact a vicious crime. Spezzi would provide details to the monster's audience, the citizens of Italy. And in a manner of speaking, they had become two parts of the same puzzle. And it was taking a toll on Spezzi. He visited his therapist monk, Brother Babini, more and more in an attempt to come to terms with the horrendous crimes and the unexplainable evil that had caused them. I don't blame him. I can imagine that being a crime reporter would be a difficult job, but the level of horror that Spezzi had to witness is almost unimaginable. And sadly, it would only get worse. In 1985, a year after the last murder, the monster re-emerged. But this murder was not as simple for the monster or his two victims, French tourist Jean Crevichvili and Nadine Marion. Oh, I'm, I'm cold. Well, get closer to me. I know it will make you even warmer. All right, let's go to bed. I'm getting tired anyway. Don't say that. Get in before the bears get us. There are no bears here. I know. What do they have here? I don't know. Besides wine and pasta? That's all you need. Well, that and... <laughs> what was that? What? Something's out there. Like a bear? No, Jean, I heard it. It's something else. You're paranoid. Get the flashlight. It's too dark. Ugh, all right. You make me beg for it every time, don't you? Hurry. I can't find it. What is that? What is that? I don't know. Something's out there. Calm down, will you? No, Jean, don't! Ugh, my hand! Jean! Oh, Nadine! The bodies were discovered the next day when a mushroom picker stumbled on the campsite. The woman Nadine had been shot in the face. Her genitals and left breast had been removed just like the previous victim. The man, John, had been shot in the wrist, but he managed to escape the tent. Being a trained sprinter, Jean was able to run into the woods, but the killer chased him and eventually caught up with him. And when the monster overpowered him, he stabbed Jean several times and then slit his throat. It was noted later that Jean might have been able to escape the monster if he had only gone in the opposite direction. And being a tourist, Jean was unfamiliar with the area. Had he known better, he could have run towards the road which led into town. Instead, he ran straight into the woods.
The following day, the prosecutor on the Monster of Florence case, a woman named Silvia Della Monica, received an anonymous letter. Come in. Here's the mail from today. You want it now or later? Oh, uh, now, I guess. I might as well take a break. Are you going out for lunch, or do you want me to order in? Who's this from? I don't know. Looks like a child made it. (laughs) These are letters cut out from a magazine. Is this a joke? I honestly don't know. I swear, the lack of decorum in this place. (sighs) What is it? (gasps) Sylvia! (gasps) Oh my god, what? Inside an envelope addressed to Sylvia was an amputated nipple. The absolute horror of that experience took its toll on Sylvia. She soon quit the case and eventually ended her career in law enforcement. As we can see, the murdered lovers were not the only victims of the monster's depraved antics. He was reaching many of those involved. And his elusiveness would continue to stump investigators as well as cause a number of different prosecutors and detectives to take the reins. The turnover of those working the case would be frequent and swift. Apparently, this was not a case to be solved by one man or woman alone. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Now, the story continues. Following Sylvia's withdrawal from the case, Chief Criminal Prosecutor Pierre-Luigi Vigna took her place. Now, this man was a rare breed. Even though he prosecuted high-level criminals, he refused to have any bodyguards and kept himself listed in the telephone book. He basically welcomed any ticked-off criminal to try him. (laughs) Not only that, he wore perfectly tailored suits, sharp ties, and was more handsome than the average Italian lawyer at the time. For the Monster of Florence investigation, he was paired with Judge Mario Rotella. Rarely did they see eye to eye. Rotella was convinced that the monster was a Sardinian clan member and decided that the next man to pursue was the eldest of the Vinci brothers. His name was Salvatore. Here's a little backstory on Salvatore. First of all, he had apparently participated in a threesome with Barbara Locci and Stefano Mele. You may recall that Mele became a suspect in 1981 after he was convicted of killing his wife Barbara in 1968. Mele was tied to the Sardinian clan, which led to the Sardinian trail in the first place. We know there are a lot of intricacies to this case. And it seems to be getting more complex as we go, so you may want to pay close attention. Back to Salvatore. In 1961, he was forced to flee his homeland of Sardinia after his 19-year-old wife was found dead. It was deemed a suicide, but others had another theory. That Salvatore had actually killed her and made it look like a suicide. Not a great track record for this man. And now, he would be in the limelight once again. Rotella ordered his arrest in 1985 and brought him to trial. But this may have been a hasty and foolish move. No one would really testify against Salvatore, probably because of his role in the clan. And the evidence didn't line up convincingly. Prosecutor Vigna's attempt to convict Salvatore was a total failure. So, once again, this seemingly impossible case was at a pathetic standstill. But the tide was about to change. Enter in the new man who would lead the investigation, 
Chief Inspector Ruggiero Perugini. He was ready to bring a fresh perspective to unlocking the true identity of the monster of Florence. Often seen in formal attire and toting a pipe, Perugini was like a mix between Sherlock Holmes and Robert De Niro. His manner was British, his accent and intensity were 100% Italian. Out of all the investigators, he became the most famous, and he took advantage of his 15 minutes when he went on a popular Italian news show. Here, he dramatically addressed the monster on live television. I have a message for the man behind the killings of the lovers of Toscana. Listen here. People call you a monster, or maniac, or even a beast. But in my study of your handiwork, I have come to know you. I have come to understand you. Your actions are indicative of wanting the world to know you. Well, here's your chance. Give yourself up to authorities and let the world see you. We are here to help you. During the case, when Perugini addressed his subordinates, he had a totally new angle for the investigation. Settle down. Playtime is over. The fate of many Italians and many tourists rests in our hands. These former investigators have been chewing on the same cud for years and it's gotten them nowhere. This business about the gun and its sole connection to the clan is no good. It is my belief that the monster is not from the clan. He's not some cheap mafioso. He's much more than that. He's a psychopath. Maybe yes, but that is a vague term. We need specificity. We are on the cusp of a new age. Technology is booming. And when technology booms, what must we do? We must boom with it. Instead of running around like chickens with our head cut off, we will turn to another source of information. The computer. We will input information and use the computer to make sense of it. To find a pattern. To provide us with a viable suspect. You want us to work at computers all day? I want you to approach this case with a new mindset. A mindset of a profiler. We analyze the detail of the crime scene, the M.O. of our killer. We search the database for criminals, looking at sex crimes convictions, prison sentences, history of violence, to distill our suspect down to a single person. And that's just what they did. After a meticulous search, one man rose to the top of the suspect pile. His name was Pietro Pachani. 69 years old, stout but forceful. A farmer and a fervent alcoholic who had served 13 years in prison when he was 26. Uh, at this point, we'd like to issue a warning to those listening. The details of the sexually violent crime Pachani was convicted of are disturbing. Proceed with caution. In 1951, Pachani caught his girlfriend sneaking off to the countryside with her lover, so he followed them into the woods. When he witnessed them start to undress, he was so enraged that he ambushed them and bashed in the head of the man until he died. Then he raped his girlfriend beside the body of her dead lover. Later, he was also convicted of sexually assaulting his two daughters. Sounds like a wonderful guy. Pachani may have been one of the worst criminals in Italy, considering his priors, but was he capable of a string of serial murders? We shall see. Perugini thought so. First of all, 
the evidence against him was pretty damning. Oh, that's right. Pachani was in prison from 1974 to 1981, a span of time when the monster didn't kill, as far as we know. Just a coincidence? Or could this point to Pachani as the killer? Well, there's more. When Perugini reviewed Pachani's history, he came across an interrogation by police. Are you a jealous man, Mr. Pachani? I don't know. Have you ever gotten jealous because of a woman? I have gotten angry. Women know how to make a man angry. How so? They flirt. They parade around. They pretend they are more beautiful than they are. Have you ever been angry with one of your girlfriends? They have all given me hell. Was there one in particular that made you the most angry? My fiance. She was the worst. She had a man who wanted her, and she loved it. She showed him her left tit for his pleasure. This bit of the interview struck Perugini. He felt this statement was a strong piece of evidence. The fact that Pachani became so angered when his fiancée showed her left breast was an interesting link to the monster's act of removing the left breast of his female victims. Because of this, Pachani was looking good as the prime suspect. So, Perugini got a warrant to search his house. And he and his team found something interesting. Nothing in here, sir. Keep looking. This ogre is hiding something. What about the back room? They're still in there. Anything? Mm, just junk. Old trinkets and things. Junk? You call art junk? What? The painting? <laughs> it's a cheap copy. The painting that they were referring to was a reproduction of Botticelli's Primavera, which can be found in the Uffizi Gallery, Florence's most famed museum. The image depicts nymphs gathered in the woods. Look at this image. What do you see? Goddesses in the forest. And a man on the left. What else? A cherub at the top. Is there something else, sir? Look at this nymph. She is different from the others. The way she stares at Hermes. As if she knows she will be taken to the underworld. And look at her mouth. Uh, sir? There are flowers pouring out from it. Take this. The painting? This is something. Perugini believed he had found a piece of striking evidence, but he would have to convince those higher up on the food chain. Come in. Ruggiero, have a seat. Your men today have been chattering on about your obsession with Botticelli. I have no obsession with the man. He is a profound artist. But it is not him I am interested in. Take a look at this photograph. From the 1981 crime scene. Look at the girl. I see her. The gold chain. It's spilling out of her mouth. I see that also. Does it not remind you of the nymph in this painting? What are you saying? The monster model is killing on Botticelli's nymph? We are dealing with a man who places great importance on his crimes. The details are... I know. Like you, I have been studying it all. Just because I sit at a desk doesn't mean I've lost the power of deduction. I know that. But the bullets, for example, he leaves the shells for us to find. And every one has the same mark. The removal of the body parts from the women, the gold chain in this photograph. He is not merely killing, he is performing. He is staging his crimes almost like it were the theater. I can agree with that. Pachani had this painting in his home. I'm beginning to believe he is more than a country brute. He appreciates art. 
Did you know he's a self-taught painter? That hardly means... Pachani is sexually violent. He is obsessed with women. The women the monster kills are his prize victims. He could care less about the men. They're a side note. Mentally, I think he and the monster, they are one and the same. Pachani is our man. Or very close to it. Okay, Ruggiero. What do you want us to do next? I want to search his entire property. Leave no stone unturned. We will find what we need. <sighs> okay. Authorities conducted a 12-day search tearing apart Pachiani's house and property grounds. On the 11th day, things were looking grim. They hadn't really uncovered anything of value to the case. Espresso? Yes. Uh, with a little something extra, if you don't mind. What is your preference? Surprise me. And I will be asking for a refill. I could get you an actual drink. No. I must pace myself. Ruggiero, the search does not bode well for us. We need more. Sit. Have an espresso with me. My wife is expecting me, and the kids have schoolwork. And we have a case. You know what your problem is? You get an idea in your head, and there is no stopping you. Isn't that my job? To never stop? To find the answer? Yes, the answer, but not a vague possibility. Get some rest tonight. Tomorrow is most likely our last chance. The next day, authorities continued their exhaustive search. And then, something happened. Men of Toscana, we have found it. We have found it! What did you find? That which I hold between my fingers. Ruggiero, don't be coy with us. A 22 caliber bullet. It was in the garden. My lord, you may have done it. Wrap it up, and let's alert ballistics. On January 16, 1993, Pachani was arrested and charged with the seven double homicides associated with the monster of Florence. Perugini was confident that he had found the man who had eluded capture for nearly two decades. But Mario Spezzi, who had devoted years of his journalistic career to covering stories about the monster, was not. He didn't believe a man like Pachani was capable of such criminal mastery. Spezzi would later comment that the police were always searching for a sexually violent man, a rapist who took women by force, but he didn't believe that was the profile of the monster. For Spezzi, the fact that the killer never physically raped his female victims meant that the monster of Florence was actually impotent. And the cops couldn't have found the killer because they were looking for the wrong kind. But Perugini had built an entire case around Pacciani, who was now headed for trial. We'll cover this momentous trial in next week's episode. Perugini had taken the investigation as far as he could. And now it was time for a jury to decide whether or not they had found Italy's famed serial killer. Don't think for a second that this would be an easy task. As you should know by now, nothing involving the monster ever is. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. 
A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday, we'll continue our investigation into the monster of Florence. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire. Unsolved Murders is written by Jessica Mallow and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Janine Gibbons, Nicholas Masu, Manu Narayan, Steve Pinto, Greg Polson, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>